Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, welcome to the new episode of The Locals Podcast, Talking France. On this week's episode, we'll discuss everything from France's love for the British Queen, problems with French nuclear power, the long-awaited return of Dijon mustard to supermarket shelves, and what the devastating wildfires could mean for France's fine wines. We'll also look at why the thorny issue of euthanasia and assisted dying is back in the news in France, and how President Emmanuel Macron is hoping to settle the country's law on the right to die once and for all. But is a referendum really the best way to do that? We'll bring you much, much more, including some French vocab to learn and the one French TV show you really should tune into this autumn. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and as ever, I'll be joined by editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and our political expert, John Litchfield. Thanks to you all for listening. On y va. Thanks for joining me again, Emma and Jen. Emma, what have you been up to? You've had an eventful weekend. Yeah, I had a great weekend, actually. I was at the Fête de l'Humanité, which is the biggest leftist festival in France. I think it might be the biggest leftist festival in the world, actually. So many of the people at the festival were telling me. About 500,000 people go over three days. Wow. Yeah, it was good. You had a good time? I had a great time. It's uh, it's got some political debates, which I must admit I didn't go to any of them. Um, it's what got... did you do then? If you if you avoided the debates, <laughs> uh, I listened to some bands. There were some great bands playing, and I also ate a lot of French food. It's honestly like a gastronomic tour of France because all of the local communist parties from all the regions in France have a stand, and they all serve like the traditional food and drink of their region there. So you can like eat your way around France in one festival. It's great. Fantastic. Yeah, I've heard a lot about the Fête de l'Humanité. It's in the Paris region, yeah. Uh, it's usually on the outskirts of Paris. It was in Isson this time, which is kind of in the greater Paris region. It took us about an hour to get there on the area. Definitely worth checking out next year. Jen, what about you? I had a relatively uneventful weekend. I did some organising. I, I did, however, have a very French experience on Sunday. Uh, I was inviting my friends over for dinner and I had been planning on cooking tacos, specifically pulled pork tacos. Um, it's not very French, Jen. No. <laughs> I make do uh, with what I have here. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> in terms of North American cuisine. Uh, and uh, anyway, I had been planning to go to the butchers, but I didn't get out of my apartment until like 4.30 p.m., which if you're listening to this and you live in France, you're probably thinking that I'm a bit stupid because all the butchers usually close around yes. midday. Yes, <laughs> me and Emma are shaking our heads here. Uh, the idea that you can think you're going to find a butcher's on a Sunday afternoon. They're really, they're open and they're very busy on a Sunday morning, but generally close at about 12.30, I think. Yeah, so I had no luck finding a French butcher that was open. Uh, and But I live near Belleville, um, which is a very multicultural area. And so I figured, well, there's always a lot of butchers that are open up there. So I start walking towards Belleville and I'm passing all of these open butchers. But unfortunately, most of them are owned by by uh, Middle Eastern or North African owners. And that means that the food is halal, meaning no pork. <laughs> so uh, in the end, I made chicken tacos. Ah, okay, fine. Okay, were they nice? They were really good. But uh, yes, that was a, an essential 
American in Paris yeah. problem. <laughs> okay, learn to go shopping on a Sunday morning in Paris. Okay, let's move on and straight into this week's podcast. What are we talking about in the news this week, Emma? Uh, we're talking nuclear because something rather unfortunate has happened to the French nuclear industry. And obviously the, the bar for disasters is quite high when you're talking nuclear. So I should maybe just say at this point that there's not been a nuclear disaster. It's all fine. Everybody's safe. But the French nuclear industry is having some problems and it's chosen a pretty unfortunate time to have those problems. France is a bit of a, an outlier in European terms, just in the size of its, uh, of its nuclear industry. Since they opened the first nuclear power plant in 1962, the country now has 56 reactors at 18 different sites. And in normal times, they produce about 70% of France's electricity. And France is usually a net exporter of electricity because it produces electricity from other sources as well. And since, as we all know, Europe is undergoing an energy crisis as a consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent sanctions, it would have been quite handy for France to have all this self-generated energy. It would have shielded it from uh, the problems that many other countries are having. Unfortunately, this year, production from the nuclear sector has dropped off very significantly to the point where it now cannot meet the needs of the country and France is now having to actually import its electricity or some electricity. I mean, not so long ago, French governments were promising to kind of reduce the country's dependence on nuclear power. That's not in the news now. It's not a priority now. But why is this happening at the moment? Well, it's for three reasons, mainly. The first is the summer. Uh, as we remember, it was scorching and there was a drought. Nuclear plants need a large amount of water in order to keep their reactors cool. And in France, a lot of the plants are built next to rivers for this exact reason. But as many people will know, a lot of rivers in France have kind of dried up to a bit of a trickle this summer. A lot of places have water restrictions. So a lot of the plants cannot get the water they need. And so they've had to lower production in order not to overheat their reactors. So that's a temporary problem, which hopefully will be solved as the summer ends. But there's also two other problems which have been happening since January. And they're basically uh, closures of power plants. Some of these are just temporary closures for maintenance. There's a backlog of maintenance left over from the pandemic. So there's been more scheduled shutdowns than normal. But the other closures are a bit more worrying. They're unplanned closures and they're because of cracks found in the cooling pipes. Tiny cracks. It sounds worrying. Uh, yeah, it is a bit. Like I say, they're tiny, microfissure, they call them in France. It's basically happening just because the plants are getting old, corrosion is becoming an issue. They're mostly just found in a certain part of the emergency cooling system, so they're not even in use every day. And the engineers say it's not actually a huge problem, it's just that they need fixing. It's a very specialist job, and obviously you can't really be too careful with nuclear, so the plants are shut down until all of that problem is fixed. EDF says that everything should be repaired and back on track by February, in time for the coldest part of the winter so hopefully we'll be back to a more normal level of production by february although edf are also the people who promised that the new nuclear power plant which is up at flamanville in northwest france would be open by 2012 and it's still not open yes i was up there recently actually not far it's in the manche department of la manche i was on the beach near it. it's still a huge building site you can see it from far off but that's been in the works for years and it still gets put back regularly each year they announce a, a new delay yeah thanks. they say next year for it now so we'll see we'll wait and see yes thanks emma now each week in talking france we like to talk about who's in the news in france where we normally pick a french personality this week she's not french 
Although she's dear to the French, as we've discovered this week, it's Queen Elizabeth II, Emma. Yeah, and she also speaks French, or did speak French. We're talking about Britain's Queen Elizabeth II, who died last week at the age of 96. Obviously, this has been a very big news event in the UK, but it's been a surprisingly big deal here in France, too. There's been wall-to-wall TV coverage for over a week now. President Emmanuel Macron wrote a long tribute to her, and he also recorded a message in English to the English people with condolences on our loss. The Eiffel Tower went dark. Communes all across France have had their flags at half-mast. People have been leaving flowers outside the British Embassy in Paris. It really is a surprisingly big deal here. I know. I mean, I've had... I got a message from a parent at school on my on my phone, you know, a guy I've never spoken to, who left me a really heart-rendering message, you know, apologising for the death of Queen Victoria. <laughs> I hope I was getting over it. I'm like, yeah, we're, you know, I'm OK, we're doing OK. And... and I also went to the dentist with some teeth problems, as you do when you go to the dentist. And the dentist was sitting in front of me, pointing at an X-ray, and she turned to me and she said, "I'm really sorry for your pain." And I said, "Yeah, you know, it really hurts when I run and when I drink cold milk." And she said, "No, no, I don't, I don't mean your teeth. I mean the Queen. <laughs> you know, how are you holding up?" And I'm like, "All oh, right, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm fine." But you know, it is little messages. You know, they're all meant really well. It's, it, it's really nice to have so much interest in British culture perhaps from from french people but um yeah it has been non-stop coverage in france everybody's talking about it here any reason for that well yeah i mean i have to say it was a surprise to uh, to me you would think that famously republican france uh, a country that lest we forget guillotined its own monarchs would not be that into royalty but it's really not the case they love a royal and a british royal specifically and this has been the case for quite a long time like way back in the 1960s charles de gaulle was talking about it his quote on the subject is the french have a taste for princes but they tend to look abroad for them Um, And then closer to our own time, Emmanuel Macron once called the French a nation of regicidal monarchists, which I thought was quite a a good one. It's a curious phenomenon. But one thing I did notice is that most of the tributes to the Queen from France are focused on her as being a a sort of a unifying force, someone who's above politics. And I think really that's the key to it, that, you know, France, a country, as we know, frequently divided, sometimes violently divided, kind of likes the idea of having this single unifying figure. Yes, I think this is a good point to bring in John Litchfield, our political expert, and get his views on why the Queen and the British royals are so popular in France. How do you explain it, the wall-to-wall coverage, you know, the comments by French people expressing real condolences whenever they meet British people here? It's been quite surprising, has it? Yeah, surprising and and not surprising. I mean, you know, I think you have to separate um, affection for Britain, which exists, despite what the Daily Mail or Daily Express or others might tell you in France. There is an enormous affection for Britain, and therefore I think that the Queen is is associated with Britishness very strongly. There is also a kind of obsession amongst French people with royalty and stardom, not just the British royal family, but especially the royal family. They're also obsessed with the Monaco royal family and other royal families, but especially the British one. So they may have killed off their own royal family more than 200 years ago uh, initially, uh, but there's still there is still a sort of obsession with a kind of uh, love of, of royalty and the panoply of royalty in France, which is, is quite difficult to understand in a republic. It doesn't go to everyone. I mean, there are a lot of people on the left who don't go agree with it at all. A number of mayors around the country apparently have, have refused to put the flags at half-mast on, as Macron's recommended, all, all town halls do on the day of the, of the Queen's funeral. There are some 
fiercely secular Republican mayors out there who say they're not going to do that. So it, it isn't universal. I think it's a generational thing as well. I think the Queen, amongst older French people, is associated with Britain's uh, being a, a strong ally of France in wartime, but also the fact that the royal family was extraordinarily welcoming and supportive, more so than many other British people were to de Gaulle when he was in exile in France. The fact it's known that the Queen was extremely francophile and quite um, francophone as well, spoke French reasonably well in my experience. I heard her speaking once French. So uh, there, are, there are a number of specific uh, reasons why I think they had an affection for the Queen, but I think it does reflect a sort of affection for Britain, which I think we often forget. Now, Jen, you've got some fun quiz facts for us on this subject. Fire away. I actually did a little bit of research on French royalty and I came across some interesting statistics, uh, specifically the percentage of French people that would support a return to the monarchy in France. So I'm going to uh, blind test you guys and see what you think that percentage is. What do you think it is, Ben? Okay, you're suggesting it should be high, but you know, in my head, it can't be more than 30%. Okay. Emma, what do you think? No, it must be even lower than that. 5%, maybe. Okay, so the correct answer is 17%. So just under one in five French people would be in favor of a king as the head of state in France. And that's according to a study in 2016. So not that long ago. And I'm guessing that those numbers are probably around the same, given the amount of support for the lovely queen. I would say it's pretty wild. And honestly, the choices for the French in terms of who their monarch would be are equally odd. Uh, so there are three pretender kings to the French throne. There's a Spaniard, Louis-Alphonse de Bourbon, who's also the Duke of Anjou, um, and he's making his claim from the Spanish border on the Spanish side of the House of Bourbon, but he also shares some other authoritarian blood. His great-grandfather was actually Francisco Franco. <laughs> um, and then there's Jean d'Orléans, the Count of Paris, and he comes from the Orléans family. And he made quite a fuss a few years ago when he sued the St. Louis Foundation because he wanted to get one of his chateaux back after the foundation forced him to move out when he didn't want to pay rent. And finally, there's Jean-Christophe Napoleon, or perhaps his dad, um, because his grandfather actually skipped over his father, Charles, in the unofficial succession line, because the father started having some Republican viewpoints. So anyway, the French have some not-so-great options for uh, their return to the monarchy, if you ask me. I think their Game of Thrones version would be a little bit less entertaining. <laughs> Fantastic. So there is someone in France called Napoleon, Jean-Christophe Napoleon. He exists. Yes, he does. So he's not actually the direct line from the Napoleon that we think of because he didn't have any um, offspring that would take the throne. It's from his brother. Interesting. We should try and get an interview with him. Now, where are we talking about in France this week? Let's take a look around the country to see what stories are in the news and where's in the news. Jen, we're talking about Dijon and Mustard. So where are we heading this week? We are off to Burgundy. Uh, contrary to popular belief, France is not the world's top mustard seed producer, even though many people might think of Dijon as the mustard capital of the world. Uh, actually, most of France's mustard seeds come from Canada, and that was actually the reason why France was left with a shortage this year, because Canada suffered a drought and a heat wave, which damaged their supplies. I only realized about this mustard shortage, you know, a couple of months ago when I went into the supermarket, and there was literally every type of mustard apart from Dijon. That I think the supermarkets have brought in, obviously, for, to help people who are looking for some kind of mustard. 
Um, but yeah, it's serious. There isn't anywhere, isn't any mustard at all. Yeah, the, the shortage is still going on. Um, but the reason that we're talking about Dijon and not Canada is because Dijon is trying to come up with a solution to the mustard problem. So basically, the plan is to boost production across Burgundy. More production in Burgundy also means that French mustard producers are not going to have to worry about shipping costs or delays, um, which have been a big issue during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and ultimately, it looks like this plan is going to work. Mustard seed producers think the shortage is going to be over by early 2023. But that being said, since mustard makers are going to be paying more for the burgundy seeds, the price of mustard might end up increasing a bit for consumers too. So at the end of the day, mustard fans can rejoice because you will most likely have all the mustard you want to slather on your Christmas dinner this year, but they might be a little bit more expensive. I'm ready to pay any price to get a, a, a jar of Dijon back in my fridge. Thanks, Jen. And also this weekend is the weekend of Les Journées Européens du Patrimoine or European Heritage Days, which is a bit easier to pronounce where you get to visit some pretty famous buildings around France. Emma, tell us a bit more about this event. Yeah, this happens every September and it's happening this weekend, Saturday, Sunday. And there are about 20,000 venues that are open to the public, usually for free. Uh, some of them are places that you can visit normally, but they're just having free days. But for me, the, the best ones are the places that are not normally open and they're only open on this one weekend of the year. Now, one of them has been the Elysee Palace, which people queue up for. Tell us about three places on your list that you'd like to go to. Well, yeah, I have put the Elysee on because it's the only time of year you'll get to see this unless you're personally invited by the president. I went to it last year. It's great. Slightly disappointingly, you don't get to tour the Macron's actual private apartments. I was looking forward to having a rummage through the bathroom cabinet, you know, and see what moisturiser Brigitte uses, but no. Ah. Um yeah, it's a shame. But you do get to see all of the public rooms and all of the rooms where, you know, you might recognise them from broadcasts of presidential announcements or TV recordings of government meetings or whatever. So you really are in the heart of the French government. It's also very beautiful. The building is stunning. And it's got this great art collection, which I did not know about before. But French presidents are allowed to buy artwork while they're in office, but they have to leave it behind when they go because they're using public money for it. So there's this great collection that sort of shows all the individual tastes of French presidents through history and they're just kind of scattered casually around the rooms. Now presumably there's a huge queue to get in the Elysee. Uh, yeah, there is a massive queue. Uh, you have you have to book your tickets in advance. They're free, uh, but you do have to book in advance and even when you have a ticket, there's some queuing. So I would say wear some comfy shoes and take a bottle of water. Okay, and anywhere outside Paris? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely loads, but I've just picked a couple, which is some of the places also run special events and there's a place in Foix, in Ariège, called the Villa Lauique. This has a, a pretty grim history actually it's a, a villa a private house but it was used uh, as the local Gestapo headquarters during World War II and as you can imagine some pretty grim things went on inside its walls during that period the villa is opening its doors for heritage days this weekend so you can visit they've put together a collection of the testimonies of some of the resistance fighters who were held there or who lost friends there and there's also a display where you can see the graffiti on the walls that was kind of scribbled by the people who were held there so it's pretty emotional I imagine but um, will be interesting to see I think and a slightly more uh, more cheerful one is up in Morbihan in Brittany. There's a restoration project at a place called La Métairie. The restoration's been going on for quite some time, but for Heritage Day, they're asking for volunteers to come along. So you can basically come along and help build some walls of this very special restoration, and they'll supervise you, obviously. There is a website, by the way, I should say, for the Journey du Patrimoine, so you can find all the events happening near you. Like I said, there's 20,000 of them, so there'll probably be something near where you are. Something for everyone near where you are in France. Thanks, Emma. 
In 2016, French law ruled that active euthanasia and assisted suicide would remain illegal. But just six years later, President Emmanuel Macron has announced that a major new consultation on the highly divisive subject would soon be launched. His move appears to have the support of experts in France. The president has even suggested he's prepared to hold a referendum to settle the matter. Many in France are asking why now? And why does Macron want to reopen a Pandora's box just as the country is in the midst of a cost of living and energy crisis? Supporters, however, say it's time to update France's conservative laws and bring them into line with some of their European neighbours. Before we get John Litchfield's views on the subject and hear why he thinks a referendum would be a disaster, Jen, just explain to us why this issue is once again back in the news in France. Yeah, so at the time of recording the podcast, uh, France had just received the report from its National Ethics Committee for Health and Life Sciences, uh, which is an official government body that's basically made up of researchers, spiritual leaders, philosophers, and their only job is to consider really tricky ethical questions and then publish their opinions. And they concluded that there is a pathway towards an ethical application of an active assistance in dying. So what does that mean? Basically, they're saying that there is a way, ethically, uh, with sufficient supervision to have a right to die in France. And the French press has been talking about this a lot. Uh, it's definitely made headlines. And they seem to think that this report is going to help pave the way for a new kind of debate on the topic. And President Macron is also thinking about it. So he recently announced plans to create a citizens council. Basically, this is a group of citizens chosen at random with a diverse set of viewpoints in order to help come up with a common ground answer to another ethical question. And he's hoping to present a law to Parliament sometime in 2023 about the right to die in France. Um, and he actually hasn't excluded a referendum either, so this might become more of a public debate just in our own sectors uh, if it ends up being a referendum. Um, so it's safe to say the topic is definitely coming back into the forefront and it's going to continue being there for a while. Okay, Emma, what is the, the rules or law in France around euthanasia and assisted dying and, you know, how do we compare this to the rest of Europe, some of France's neighbours? Well, there's quite radically different legislation all across Europe. And I think France is definitely one of the more conservative countries on this issue. Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Luxembourg and Germany all allow some forms of assisted dying, although the exact form varies. Um, and the Nordic countries mostly allow passive euthanasia, where people with incurable conditions have the right to opt out of any medical treatment, but also the right to opt out of uh, nutrition or hydration. Uh, the most recent legal change in France was in 2016, when patients with incurable conditions got the right to ask for what they call continuous deep sedation, which basically involves the doctor putting the patient completely to sleep until nature takes its course, however long that might be. And this is a subject that is frequently in the headlines, uh, often when high-profile cases hit the news. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just in the last couple of years, there's been uh, a couple of, uh, of cases that have really made the news. Back in 2020, there was a guy called Alain Koch, a 57-year-old man who had a, a rare terminal medical condition. And he wrote to Emmanuel Macron asking for doctors to be able to allowed to end his life and Macron basically wrote back and said well I, I'm very sorry for your troubles but I as the president cannot cannot overstep the, the French law and the French law says that no you can't do that so that was kind of quite a high profile thing and there was also another um, another guy called uh, Vincent Lambert he was a 43 year old man he'd actually been in a vegetative state for 11 years after su suffering severe brain damage in a car crash and his family ended up in this massive legal battle that sort of dragged through the courts for a long time and 
And I mean, both of these cases, when they were in the news, they sort of sparked big public reaction. There were quite a lot of demonstrations for one no, one side or the other. There's no doubt it's a contentious issue. The Catholic Church is strongly opposed to it. And of course, there are a significant number of Catholics in France. But there's also a vocal movement that's in favour of, of the right to die, has a number of high profile backers, uh, including the actress Lynne Renault. She's 94 years old. She's very well known as an actress, a singer in France. She's a sort of French national treasure. She recently met Emmanuel Macron, actually. He presented her with the Légion d'honneur uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's after this meeting that he announced the um, Citizens' Convention on the subject. So, I don't know, maybe she's very persuasive. Indeed, a very sensitive subject, a subject that I think we should turn to our columnist, John Litchfield, who's written about this for The Local this week. You can read that article on thelocal.fr. Let's bring in John. We've talked about the context and, and the history behind this law and issue on assisted dying in France. Why is Macron looking into this now? Is it a big risk for him? Yeah, it's a, it's a risk. I mean, it's something he mentioned during the presidential campaign that he would do, uh, that he would uh, consider bringing forward a law before the end of 2023. Obviously, at that point, he may be expected to have a parliamentary majority, so it's something he could do. I think he's been sort of, his hand has been somewhat forced by the report yesterday by the, the big uh, medical ethics committee in France, which is 40 strong, and they decided to have another look at this uh, a year or so ago, quite independently of what Macron had said and came up with their report yesterday. So in a sense, he was forced to say something. And interestingly, they've changed their opinion because three years ago they said, no, it was not appropriate for, for doctors to be put in a position or allowed to, to take life. And now they're saying in the report yesterday that Medical situation has changed, social situation has changed, that there are situations where people are confronted with having to live for, for many months in, in, in either psychological or physical suffering. And if they choose to do so in, in their right minds, it is not necessarily a wrong thing to do. They've not said definitely that's what they want to see, but they say that it's reasonable for a law to be brought forward on that. And Macron therefore said, well, we'll have a go next year. We'll, we'll have a, a, a citizens' convention, a sort of conference of randomly chosen citizens, but with some representatives of, of the, the main bodies interested in this uh, issue. And they will report within six months and we will try and bring forward a law to Poland and horror of horrors, the referendum maybe by the end of next year. So I think he's been put in a rather difficult position. I'm not sure that he is looking necessarily to sort of add one more controversy to all the different crises he already has. I think he, he had sort of, he'd already promised this and there was forced to say something. John, you mentioned the possibility of a referendum that Macron himself has raised. You're against this and why? What are the dangers of a referendum on this issue? I think referenda are uh, legitimate in certain cases. This, the, the issues in this are so complex, uh, even for people who are confronted with these issues every day. But it's something that sort of lends itself to sort of demagoguery, misinformation. I can just imagine the avalanche of nonsense that would appear on the internet, anti-Macron, um, misleading information about what actually is proposed and what's not proposed, because you have to look very closely at the details of what's here. I mean, there are differences between euthanasia and assisted suicide and not sort of insisting on, on life going on when it's essentially ended. They're all different contexts there and, and often get very muddled in even relatively careful reporting. Therefore, I can imagine a referendum being an absolute calamity. Uh, therefore, I think if Macron goes ahead with this, I think he should go straight to Parliament, whose job it is to decide these things, not to people who, who would... I think find it very difficult of an issue like this. John, it's clearly a divisive issue in France. Why is that? And where are the divisions? 
Well, I think it's a divisive issue in all countries. I, I think it's divisive in France partly because there is a sort of still a religious versus non-religious division in France. But, you know, the poll, polling on this is, is interesting, but also very unreliable, I think. I mean, if you ask French people if they want to die with dignity, not surprisingly, 96% say they do, you know, but when it's put to them that they should have, or people should have the right to uh, assisted suicide, there's a big uh, majority in favour of that, but uh, euthanasia less so. And there is a difference between the two, euthanasia being involving the doctor actually killing someone, essentially. Assisted suicide is providing the means by which someone can take their life. So uh, it, it is a very complex issue. I, I think that France is divided, but perhaps not more than other countries. Um, I think that the, the, the very fact that this has been proposed in France, and there have been five or six changes in the law in a very short uh, space of time, which suggests that it's something that French politicians, French society generally is wrestling with and is willing to wrestle with, partly because the, perhaps the example is so close of Belgium and Switzerland, which already have very liberal laws on assisted dying, force the French to make a decision. Clearly a sensitive issue everywhere. One thing that, that the committee raised was the quality of palliative care in France. We talk regularly about the quality of the French health system. It's kind of held up abroad as a kind of an example to the rest of the world. But is there a problem with palliative care in France, end of life care? Yes, there is. And that's actually one interesting aspect of what the committee reported yesterday, especially the eight members of the 40 strong committee who wrote a dissenting report, pointed out especially that palliative care in France is just not up to scratch. I mean, the last law which exists, six-year-old law, which presently exists, excludes, uh, as deliberately declares, the illegal uh, assisted suicide or euthanasia. But it says that enormous sedation should be available, very heavy sedation, um, sleep rather than death, uh, should be available to people who are approaching the end in, in a very painful way, which seemed like a, a very reasonable compromise at the time. But six years later, apparently only... According to um, a report I saw, 60% of French people who are dying in those circumstances don't get that very, very heavy palliative care mediate, um, sedation, which the law says they should get. So the committee yesterday said there's no question, you can be no question of going forward with this unless there is an alternative to people being forced, in a sense, to consider either suicide or, or euthanasia because the, the palliative care is not there to give them a more dignified end in another way. So I think that is going to be a big issue here, whether France can afford and whether it should afford to build up its palliative care. It just doesn't have the resources, apparently, across the country to, to, to deliver the law that exists. John, we're unlikely to get any kind of legislation on this anytime soon, you know, in the coming months. But looking further ahead, do you think France will end up with an, an assisted dying law like in Switzerland, like in Belgium? Is that really a possibility? I think so. I do think so. I, th I think the, the issue has moved on rapidly uh, with all these changes over the last few years. And the, the fact that, you know, this committee yesterday represents not just medical practitioners, but a lot of medical practitioners, but lawyers, politicians, people who are involved in this area. And, you know, a 32 to 40 majority in favour with the eight not absolutely against, but just pointing out these problems like the palliative care issue that you raised is one reason why they're uncomfortable about going forward with it now. So there does seem to be a big head of steam building up behind it amongst the people who have to deal with this issue every day. Each week, we like to answer questions about France sent in by our readers. And what we're looking at this week is wine. And it's in relation to wildfires, which have started up again in the southwest France. Jen, 
Is wine going to taste smoky after these wildfires? That's the question. Well, so if we're talking about Bordeaux wine, which is the area that's mostly been impacted by these wildfires, then it looks like no. It looks like no, you're not going to have smoky tasting wine. So France has been particularly impacted by wildfires these past few months. Um, And unfortunately, like you mentioned, there are some that are still burning in parts of the Southwest. But for wine lovers, you probably noticed that a lot of these fires were burning near Bordeaux, which is known for growing wine. Uh, But you can rest assured that even though these fires uh, burned in wine country, they mostly burned in forest areas. So that means that the vineyards were pretty much spared from the flames themselves. The concern, though, was about whether or not smoke damaged uh, this year's Bordeaux vintages. And luckily, the smoke actually um, was carried away by the wind, so it was carried further away from the vineyards, not towards them. Uh, So they didn't end up inundated with the smoke. And another stroke of luck is that a lot of the fires happened when the wine production was at the early stages in the grapes maturation. So that means it was a bit too early for the smoke to really seep in and cause any damage to the taste. The smoke from these fires really spread far and wide across France. We even, you know, smelt it up up in the north here in Paris. If Bordeaux wines are okay, what about other vineyards around, you know, the southwest, other kinds of wines? Yeah, so some other vineyards, like in the Pyrenees areas, like the Côte de Roussillon Appellation, they were more closely impacted by the fires. Uh, And so those vineyards, they actually had to dump a decent amount of their harvest, and their harvest was impacted by the smoky flavoring or the smoky taste. And so what they're doing in response to that is they're trying to convert the rest of the healthy grapes into sweet wines. So basically, this is a longer maturation process. It's about one to two years longer. Um, And that means that the smoky taste is going to go away over time. So this is one solution for still being able to save some of that harvest from being wasted. And that almost brings us to the end of this week's episode. However, the one last section we do every week is to look at some important French vocab that we've learned this week that's appeared in the news. Emma, fire away. Yeah, I brought this week, I brought le gauche caviar. It means caviar left, uh, with the left being the, the political left. And it means somebody who espouses leftist ideas but lives a more elite lifestyle. Um, it's the French equivalent of a champagne socialist. But as I discovered this weekend at the Fête de l'Humanité, French communists are very keen on drinking champagne, as am I, when it's four euros a glass, as it was at the festival. Yeah, nothing wrong with being a gauche caviar, I think. Jen, what about you? Uh, I've got one that's a little bit more sad. Uh, this one is Ed Active à Mourir. So obviously this has to do with the right to die conversation happening in France. You'll probably hear this a decent amount during the debate, uh, the public debate around that topic. Uh, and it means the act of assistance in dying. So it shouldn't be confused with suicide assisté, which is assisted suicide. Okay, and you picked out another one, which is a, a word that looks different in, in French than it does in English. Yes, this one is a little bit funnier. So I keep seeing this in headlines. It's hiver rude. Uh, A lot of the French press is talking about what we should expect for this winter and they keep saying we can expect an hiver rude and I'm imagining that there's going to be this this rude winter that's calling you mean names but actually in French uh, hiver rude is just harsh winter. Ah, Interesting. Yeah, I like this one and one I always see when I've written down in French it looks strange to me is mince but when you read it it's mince. It's the same spelling as our English word which is basically something like meat. Uh, it's bœuf haché, isn't it, that we buy in the supermarket? But they use it in French as a more of a polite version of merde, I think, or mince. Yeah, it's sort of fake swearing that you do in front of your, if your kids, if you really want to say merde, but the kids are around, you say, ah, oh, mince. 
mouse. A mouse, yeah, but it looks uh, it's it looks different when it's on paper mince. And uh, one that I picked out that uh, in relation to electricity prices was a flambé des prix. And flambé in English, again, we think of something like a dessert on fire, don't we? Emma, what's a flambé? Yeah, it's when you like let a, set a dessert on fire in uh, in fancy restaurants. French re- French word, obviously, flambé on fire. Exactly, but in this case, it's flambé des prix. It's like an explosion of prices, a steep rise in prices. And Emma, you had one, uh, another one, food related. Uh, yeah, I've picked this uh, this little phrase out, which you might be hearing if you turn on the TV this week, and it is "avomac prêt pâtisser." <laughs> And I've picked it because my favourite French TV show uh, is coming back this week. This is Le Maire Pétissier, um, France's best baker. It's the equivalent of the English show The Great British Bake Off. And it's what they say to, to launch the baking every week. It's a corruption, obviously, of the, the more classic French phrase Avomac prête pâté, which means ready, steady, go, on your marks, get set, go. And you put your neck on the line this week, I believe, by saying French Bake Off's better than English Bake Off. Is that right? It absolutely is better. Please yes. explain why to our listeners uh, because uh, it's longer the show is like two and a half hours of solid baking it's got much more complicated bakes in it honestly like these people come along they're amateurs and like we- by week two they say oh you know you need to make a, a life-size model of the Eiffel Tower out of shoe pastry or whatever it's crazy complicated and it's also quite rude actually they don't do any like bleeping out and the I think this is probably the place where I first learned to swear properly in French, was just like watching the, the baker whose cake fails to rise and see how they use the, the classic French putain. Fantastic. And that's on throughout the autumn, is it? Uh, yes, yeah. Wednesday night's on there on the TV channel MC. But also, if you're not in France, you can watch it online on the MC's website. Fantastic. There you go, listeners. A recommendation for what to watch this autumn in France. And that does conclude this week's episode of Talking France. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more French news and discussion. Talking points next week.